Hello, I'm Tara Serendula, podcast producer of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today's bonus episode. We started this podcast at the beginning of lockdown to support professionals continuing to work with vulnerable children and families under unprecedented circumstances. With the goal of alleviating the pressure child protection professionals are under, we've brought together leading experts within research and practice to impart their knowledge of the latest issues in child protection and safeguarding, all in an effort to ensure that whether you're out on the front line, delivering your services at home or even on furlough, you're able to stay informed. Six months and thousands of downloads later, we want to hear from you about what you would like to hear in upcoming episodes. Whether it's a particular topic you want discussed or a particular person you want invited on the show, we want to ensure that the podcast reflects what you need. So before I leave you with some highlights from previous episodes, feel free to email us at hello at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk with any suggestions. And if you've been enjoying listening to this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe as it helps other child protection professionals find us. For now though, enjoy. Hello, I'm Wendy Thurgood. Hello, everybody. I'm Steve Myers. Hello and welcome. My name is Anne-Marie Christian. I'm a trustee of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Janine Davis. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Drs. Gabrielle Otterman and Vince Paluski. In today's episode, I have the privilege of talking with Warren Larkin about trauma, adversity and resilience in the context of a public health crisis. I think we have a good opportunity now to really drive through and start thinking about what we are doing as services from an individual to organisational level to really embed equality, diversity and inclusion into our thinking, into our practice, into our structures, into our policies. COVID-19 has really placed a lens on the pre-existing inequalities we have in society and there is no room to suggest it's due to individual behaviours. This is structural, it's something which has and is impacting some of the most minoritised and disenfranchised communities and I think we need to really have some time to really reflect what that means in practice right now. Who are we seeing in our services? Who are missing from our services? Coercive control perpetrators, the clues in the name, they're all about control. They want to control the people in their household, and that might be their intimate partner, or it might be their children, or other people in the household, you know, possibly even their parents or their adult grown-up children. But the clue is in the name. It's, It's all about control for them. With the pandemic, their usual freedoms and liberties as adults have been somewhat reduced because now there's all there's many rules and regulations which are restricting their activities. So I think that in order to keep up their usual feeling of control, they'll be redoubling their efforts to control within the household to give them that sense of power and control. It's also particularly difficult for survivors, adults and child survivors, because a lot of their usual mechanisms for coping with the perpetrator, such as perhaps getting out the house for some period of time, for the children perhaps going to school, for the adult survivor possibly going to work or going somewhere away from the perpetrator, those have obviously been stopped in many cases. Or indeed, sometimes the respite comes when the perpetrator is out of the house because they've gone to work and then the survivors are in the house but are having a bit of respite from it. So everyone's been forced to spend a great deal of time together with very little way of getting away from each other. 
it will certainly have amplified the horrors of the abuse a great deal. When the lockdown is lifted, there's going to definitely be a lot of people in need of a serious amount of help and support. What I think is interesting is that abuse tends to happen when power meets vulnerability in a whole range of settings. And it's perhaps not been recognised until now is that how much on the one side people can be put in positions of power in the sport context. So whether that's being the person that can make decisions over selection or, or funding or being able to sign contracts for a major club. Uh, and that can create real positions of power for potential perpetrators. And then on the other side of things, on the child side of things, they can become vulnerable in terms of how much they've invested or their families invested and how much they want to, to pursue a career in that, in that area. And they may not have the, the support or the procedures or the mechanisms to actually disclose any concerns because they feel like they're going to jeopardise everything they put into it. So when you put those two sides of the story together, you create a real imbalance that, that can lead to abusive relationships, really. So my perspective shifted completely when I started that job and I went out with health visitors. I spent several days just shadowing health visitors and working with colleagues in public health. And it just made me realise that the only real shift in society that we need is to focus on families and giving children the best start in life. So for me, that was mind blowing. You know, I realised that we have to move upstream. Yeah, yeah, and I, I completely agree with you there because as I've worked in similar fields to yourself, but more so in homelessness and marginalisation and complex needs and then with people convicted of offences, I've seen exactly the same as what you're saying there, that actually yeah. those connections between the groups it is generally trauma and adverse childhood experiences. And that recognition, similar to yourself, of actually starting to work in a bubble and really helping the people directly that you're working with. But then as you go through your career, recognising all of these interconnections and thinking, actually, yeah, completely. there's got to be more to this. There's got to be a way that we can prevent it. Because actually yeah. now, 20 odd years on, I'm seeing connected family members and the children that were born when yeah. their parents were children yeah. and yeah. such like coming through again and again. It's great hearing you say that because it just makes me reflect even more. And I think, I don't think I could be doing the work that I'm doing now had I not been through that process of seeing hundreds, probably thousands of individuals and families who were struggling with serious mental health problems and the consequences of it. Because it was through that process of understanding the impact on people and seeing that actually, almost without exception, something adverse or traumatic had happened to them that I ended up doing what I'm doing now. You know, I think I had to go through that process in order to see that actually prevention is the real prize. I want to particularly unpick your knowledge around girls and gangs and what are the core issues emerging specifically with young girls? So we are seeing a great number of girls involved in gang serious youth violence. What that looked like before was these were children that will probably carry whether the drugs for a boyfriend or, or a perpetrator or they would be involved in what we're seeing a high amount of is sexual violence, which is perpetrated against them. A lot of these young children that I've come across are either looked after the children themselves, so there's great vulnerability within them, and somewhat see it as coming into a support system in a strange way. It is seen as having some sort of, they can identify with something. So they might not understand the path that they're walking in, the detriment of it. And that's what we see a lot of it. So 
within practitioner advice, I always ask practitioners to, because realistically, sometimes we have to admit that we're not aware of some of the vulnerabilities. You and I might not be brought up in an area where we've had to engage in, in any of these things. And sometimes we get a lot of our information from the media. A lot of these times, there's not an intention from this young person, whether it's a female, to be involved in any of this. It actually starts with vulnerability. And it's not actually just within the most deprived background. There's some people that are from middle-class backgrounds who actually want to just be in a relationship with someone. But then what happens with that is there is a lot of coercion, a lot of control, and they ends up getting into something that they never initially expected to get in. So there needs to be an element of empathy and understanding that you probably have to understand that a lot of these young people are not criminals in a sense. They're very vulnerable. I have hope that the knowledge that we've gained in abusive head trauma some of the articles in this particular issue, but also in the field in general, will teach us how to work with families to do a better job understanding their children and realizing that they need to react differently, they need different parenting skills. And this will affect not just abusive head trauma, but child maltreatment in general. I'm usually a positive guy. I think, you know, my experience with this disease, which I call a disease because 20 years ago, I was trying to prevent this disease in our newborn nurseries in Michigan and trying to do this. We could make a dent in this a little bit using some of these parenting educational programs. But I think now we know a lot more. And I think it behooves all of us, not just the child abuse doctors, not just the people who you know, see the, the bad cases, but everyone who cares for children, uh, both general pediatricians, but all the professionals, medical, nursing, and otherwise, and those people in our community who help us to devise these programs, to implement these programs, the child death review teams, the case fatality teams, the special review teams, whatever you want to call it, all those people, I think, are learning that we can make a difference. So I do have hope. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode. Remember, we want to hear from you about what you want from this podcast. So get in touch at hello at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. To find out more about what we're up to as an association, including upcoming events, member meetings, and a recently released issue of Child Abuse Review, visit our website, www.childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. And if you can spare a couple of minutes, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Thank you.